electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Uh, today, a series of upgrades and downgrades for chips today. We're going to parse through all of those calls and bring you the names, the street at least, things you might own. Plus, a CNBC investigation finds the former CEO of Google made investments in AI while chairing a federal commission. That story is later this hour. And then big tech versus recession. We'll do a deep dive on Amazon, Alphabet, Meta, Apple, and Microsoft ahead of earnings this week. Break down some of the key issues and metrics you're going to be watching for, D. Yeah, well, let's dig into it. It is a big week ahead for tech. And when it comes to the two companies, guys, that I follow very closely, Amazon and Alphabet, there's the sense that they have already been taking their medicine this year. Amazon, of course, built too much, hired too much over the pandemic and acknowledged that earlier this year resulted in billions of dollars of costs to restore its efficiency. That could position it better than other e-commerce rivals this holiday season. Also, has that giant cloud business. So key question there, will that remain resilient? Alphabet also is a big cloud business, not as big. And the company has stopped short of job cuts, but has slowed hiring. Sundar Pichai said a few months ago at Code Guys, uh, they were focused on becoming 20% more efficient. Its ad model also seen as more resilient than that of Meta and Snap because of its trove of first-party data. That said, any surprise would not be well-received. John, I like how B of A put it this morning in terms of those broad tech earnings we're about to get. They said these are some of the best companies in the world, best brands in the world, strongest financial models, balance sheets in the world. So this week is going to be very, very key for the direction of the broader markets. Yeah, this is not a good macro. And that 20% more efficient number that you mentioned that Sundar Pichai wants out of Alphabet, that there's that 20% again. It's a shot across the bow, I think. Like, sure, they haven't announced cuts, but, you know, there are a limited number of ways to get to 20% increased efficiency. This echoes Snap's 20% cut, and it echoes what Brad Gerstner wants out of Meta, Facebook, at least 20% headcount reduction on top of reduced emphasis on the metaverse, reduced spending on the metaverse. So these are companies mm-hmm. trying to slim down. I think the question is, Carl, is this the end, right? Uh, getting them fit, heading into difficult times, or is this just the beginning, right? If Q4 ends up difficult, if 23 yeah. ends up difficult, uh, do they have to slim down even more? Uh, well, certainly, we're going to talk more about the, uh, the uh, Brad Gerstner letter. But uh, like many other companies in a zero-rate world, uh, John, Meta has drifted into the land of excess. Too many people, too many ideas, uh, too little urgency. And it does sound more like the beginning than the end. Let's not forget another 20%, John. You forgot Jim Breyers. Remember, he told us he took a 20% haircut to all of his portfolio companies, still private companies. I guess what you're asking, too, is 20% enough. That's probably what we're going to find out this quarter, but maybe in the first two quarters of next year, too. That could look even worse than the ones that we're seeing this year. Yeah, uh, it could. Speaking of Meta facing criticism from an activist we just mentioned, ahead of earnings, uh, they're facing all kinds of challenges 
Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have to listen, though. I mean, this is, this is a company that's controlled by one man. Julia Borston joins us with the latest. Julia? Well, John, after Snap's earnings raised some major red flags about a dramatically slowing ad market, there are growing concerns about what we'll hear from Meta when they report their earnings on Wednesday. That stock is up today about 1.5%, but Meta shares are down about 60% year to date. These declines prompting Brad Gerstner, CEO of Altimeter Capital, which held over 2 million shares of Meta as of the end of Q2, to write an open letter with recommendations to get what he sees as the company's mojo back. Gerstner calling on Meta to reduce headcount expense by at least 20%, to reduce annual capex by at least $5 billion from $30 billion to $25 billion, and to limit investment in the metaverse and reality labs to, more th- to no more than $5 billion per year. That's about half of what Meta is in investing right now. Now, Mark Zuckerberg does control the voting shares at Meta, so he decides what happens. But Gerstner says he wants to engage with Meta management. We reached out to Meta for comment, haven't heard anything back just yet. But all this comes as Bank of America downgrades the stock today, warning that while expectations through next year have already been lowered, they do expect advertiser budget cuts early next year to weigh on sentiment and to drive added uncertainty on top of changes in the wake of Apple's ad targeting limits, as well as the company's transition to try to make money from reels. Guys? (laughs) Julia, it also comes ahead of an anticipated AR headset from Apple, right? So while everyone is telling Mark Zuckerberg that he should rein in his VR metaverse spending, that's on the horizon, too. So how likely is it that, you know, he's going to listen, he's going to pull back CapEx even by $5 billion? Well, look, uh, that would be a dramatic pullback for for Meta right now. And this is a company that's trying to juggle these long-term commitments, this long-term plan of the metaverse, and the near-term fact that not only are advertisers pulling back, but demand for the expensive headset that they just unveiled may not be as robust as he had hoped when this this, uh, product was in development over the past couple of years. So I think this question of the health of the consumer is going to weigh on every single company that we talk about on the show, Dee. Context is important, Julia, and I think it's important to, to point out how much these companies grew over the last couple of years. It's not like during the pandemic era they just sort of maintained their headcount. A lot of the, I mean, Snap is cutting 20%, but it's just kind of cutting back what it grew in the last, what, 18 months? Uh, and Gerstner makes the point that cutting 20% of headcount expense for Meta would be going back to what, early last year's levels? These are not dramatic cuts off of where these companies were a couple years ago. It's just kind of scaling back what they thought they were gonna be able to grow into. Yeah, I think I think that's a very important point. This idea that 20% sounds like a huge amount, but if you look at how many people they've been adding every year and the sort of mad dash to draw and attract talent in a competitive market for talent, that was the pressure. Everyone was trying to add engineers, but you're right. These are companies that grew dramatically during the pandemic. They saw people spending more time on their platforms. They saw advertisers shifting over, and now we're in a different kind of market. And the question is, are we going to see growth come to a screeching halt? Are we going to see revenue flat with where we were last year? Um, and what is the outlook going into next year? I think the focus on outlook is going to be key. And Snap said things are murky. I think things could be murky for Meta as well. 
Yeah, that's a really good point, Julia. Thank you. Uh, how should you be invested with all this information in mind? Let's bring in Moffat Nathanson, co-founder, senior managing director, Michael Nathanson. Michael, I'm sure you've been listening. Great to have you. Uh, coming off a of snap last week, I know you had an advertising day not too long ago. I mean, is it, a, is it really a matter right now of agencies seeing clients turn the spigot off? You know, Carl, it's really complicated. They're turning the spigot off in some places and then turning it on in other places, right? Snap is a victim of a lot of mis missteps. Uh, I would not read across Snap's woes across the entire industry. We think search is gonna be fine. Amazon, which we don't cover, we know that's gonna do well on advertising. Um, but clearly social and video and places where you're impacted by Apple's changes are gonna, are gonna suffer. And that's been the story all year long. Um, but it's very complicated. It's, not, it's a very nuanced answer. It's just not simply you run away from all things advertising at this point. Right. So how do you think the discussion needs to go regarding cost and expenses and, and efficiencies and headcount? I mean, how, how much can you cut without sacrificing the innovation you're going to need for tomorrow? Right. So it's interesting. When, when you guys were talking, I pulled up our, our meta model. And to your point, you know, if you look at meta, they grew 12 billion. They'll grow 12 billion of expenses this year. If they roll back to 20 percent as you know, the letter suggests you guys were talking, that's just going back to where they were in 2021, right? And if advertising is going to be flat to down this year, it would seem logical that, you know, these companies all grew so quickly during the beginning of the pandemic. And this is a reset to go back to where they were probably, you know, mid-pandemic, right? There was so much growth that they all thought, and we did too, you know, the street really um, thought 2021 was sustainable. And you realize that it's not sustainable. So I think there's room for cutting so before you know, I know someone someone downgraded the stock. You know, we think there's a story here to be heard on the cost side, right? We want to hear what they're thinking. In the past, you know, Meta's been responsible. I think they've thought through, you know, slowing down some spending, and we'll hear what they say tomorrow or on Wednesday about their outlook on costs. I would expect a conversation about slowing cost growth going forward here. Michael, I go back to Brad Gerstner's note. Um, he talked about what they need to do, but there was also near the end of that letter, he talks about um, the investment that Mark Zuckerberg should be putting into artificial intelligence versus meta or maybe part of the metaverse. Um, and I wonder, do you think that meta can actually do that? I mean, you think of someone like Sundar Pichai over at Alphabet, and he's been talking about AI for many, many years. Um, how difficult would it be to shift that? Would that be good for their core business model? Well, I think that's what they're trying to do. I think they're trying to use machine learning and artificial intelligence to make their, their products better. That's that's part of the pivot, you know, into reels. If you listen to their the company's discussion about what they're trying to do going forward with their mobile products, they're trying to create short form video that's more of a discovery driven product versus friend and family referrals, right? So they need machine learning and AI to make that pivot. So yeah, you know, I don't think we on the outside really can judge the level of investment on on ML and, and artificial intelligence. But you have to believe that they know what they're doing and it's part of a product roadmap that they see clearly. So I don't think, you know, we can't tell if they're spending enough or too little, but I mean, telling Mark Zuckerberg how to do his job when it comes to uh, investing in, in technology is not something I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and I, I guess not something he has to listen to either, right? But he has, he has the option. Michael, <laughs> Michael, trying to put myself in the position of investors here when it comes to these companies, particularly Meta, Alphabet, Snap, this 20% cut 
uh, that's either being implemented or, or proposed or thought about in all these cases, it, it seems to me that that's not big recession footing. That's just no big surge footing, as you were alerting to earlier. So the, the question I, I would think I would have as an investor is, is this the end of the cutting position for a potential difficult time? Or is this just the beginning in case this is a brief recession, just kind of a rough beginning of 23, they can kind of suck in the gut and, and, and then continue forward? Which do you think this would be for the ones that are actually planning to cut about 20%? I like the sucking in the gut reference. That's good. Um, <laughs> I think what I think what this is, this is a reaction to 2022 not developing in the way the company thought. Again, 2021 was a record year. Um, I think they have to take some nips around the edges, but I don't see this as, you know, a going out of business reduction of expenses. This is a, a reset. It's probably a realignment of costs. Uh, but don't forget, like Meta has been hurt by macro, by Apple's changes, and they're also they're pivoting to reels you know, a new, a new product form. There's a lot of things going on here, a lot of headwinds. I mean, you get to 23, hopefully the macro starts improving in 23. So I don't think this is, you know, a major, major reset of expenses. I think this is getting the, the company right size for what's a disappointing year that didn't turn out as expected off of, you know, two amazing years before that, right? They, they misaligned their costs with their outlook. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we, we think about tech companies uh, Michael, and we sort of expect them to, I don't know, to be maybe more hyper-efficient uh, or, or more granular or more quick to adapt than, say, legacy industries. And yet the COVID pull forward the last two years has proven that even very astute companies, giants, who are good at scaling, uh, can be taken by surprise. Yeah. Well, Carl, like, look at look at Snap, which is not a giant, how badly they miss estimates you know, every quarter, right? Like, these are advertising-driven companies. Advertising is hard to predict. It's cyclical, right? And in 21 and 20, there were so many one-offs because of the pivot, from, you know, because of the pandemic, right? So, you know, we cover the space because we cover media and we went from media to digital because that's our natural, you know, strength. But it's it's funny because, yeah, there are tech companies, but they're driven by advertising, which is a cyclical business, right? <laughs> right. It, right? It's just reality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lessons come hard. We're, we're going to see what happens, but this is a good, good way to help us uh, frame uh, what we're going to see soon. Michael, thanks. Talk soon. Michael Nathan. Thanks. All right, still to come this hour, one, Tesla cuts prices in China. What does that mean about the competitive landscape? And two, we'll discuss whether it's time to start buying the dips, which has been painful this year. And then three, JP Morgan picks one under the radar chip name they think could rally 50% from here. Tech Chat, just getting started. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
let's get a gut check. Uh, Tesla cutting prices on the Model 3 and the Model Y in China just months after raising prices in the world's largest auto market. Those cuts coming after the EV maker reported a top-line miss in Q3. Elon Musk warning that China is experiencing, quote, a recession of sorts on the analyst call last week. Take a look at shares here. Still trying to hover just above the 200 level, down 5% uh, today to start the morning, D. And a major performer over the last month or so. Uh, markets more broadly, they are choppy this morning. Still well off their highs from last November. Our next guest says to keep buying into this bear market rally. But ahead of earnings, he has some worries about Microsoft, noting that after consistently outperforming its 200-day moving average, it has broken that trend and could face a sell-off following a larger rally. Joining us now, Northman Trader founder, lead market strategist Sven Henrik. Sven, good morning to you. Break down that Microsoft chart for our audience because it has been quite resilient this year, what would it mean for the broader markets? Hi, Dee. Good to be with you. Look, we've actually been pretty constructive on Microsoft because it's held above its weekly 200-day moving average. Yes, it's broken its uptrend in this year, um, but it in general has a very solid chart structure. Now, have risk into the 200 weekly MA uh, down to 212, but so long this channel holds, it can rally hard with the market because I, I see a lot of constructiveness in the technicals in the market vis-a-vis -vis the June lows because bears so far have failed to sustain new lows. When you, when you hit a previous bottom, you want to see the internal behavior in the market. So yeah, there's still risks out there with yields and, and earnings, obviously. But generally, as long as we hold above those 200 weekly MAs, I think we have room higher. Okay. Um, then talk about the broader NASDAQ, October lows versus June lows. You say it shows a very distinct positive divergence. Um, so the selling pressure could have abated here. Is it time to get in? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been constructive on this because, you know, look at the, the June lows. Obviously, we had the 10-year yield at 3.5%, and then we had that big summer bear market rally as, as yields moved off. Now, what happened here in September, October is very interesting on, on the number of levels. First of all, the, the NASDAQ, well, it did make new lows. It had significant positive divergences, not only in relative strength, but also on the internals. New highs and new lows did not touch those June lows. Small caps didn't make new lows. Bitcoin didn't make new lows. So there was all kinds of divergences in the market that told us that probably not the best time to pile in short, yet that's what a lot of people did, on, especially on the retail side with record put call volume. Now, I don't want to be overly optimistic here and just paint a, paint a rosy picture, but we pay attention to technicals. And it's all held. And, you know, the NASDAQ, as, as Microsoft, for example, they all held a yearly five EMAs. So from that perspective, nothing's broken at this stage. Sven, um, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's Northman Trader, right? You're not talking strategy as much as you're talking tactics. It's not a question of whether this is a bear market rally or not. It's whether it's one that you can play. Uh, is that what you're arguing? Yeah, I mean, looking at it from a day trading perspective, but from a swing trading perspective. And the S&P, for example, when it made those June lows, it also made a distinct positive divergence right into critical support, the yearly 5 EMA, the monthly 50 EMA. So there's a lot of points of confluence there that were positive. Now, if you look at this through the lens of the weekly 200 MA, we actually had a very similar setup 
in 2008, where the initial weekly 200 MA was pierced slightly. Then we had a massive counter trend rally that got us back up to the weekly 50 MA and the 61.8 FIB. Sorry for all the technical chat. But in, <laughs> in the current context, that would get us around 4,200 to 4,300 for maybe some sort of year end rally. And then we all have to determine. Uh, what the macro looks like, because we still have the threat, obviously, from yields that are extremely high. And, and the fact, by the way, I just wanted to point this out as well. Uh, we, while we tried to make new lows here in October, the 10-year yield had risen significantly above the June highs of 3.5%, mm -hmm. nearly 4.4%. So the market seems to have reacted less to these rising yields than I would have expected, frankly. Right. And, and so these positive divergences have played so far. And as long as you can maintain that, you can, you can have a nice, solid, sizable counter rally. And then we'll have to assess the macro because in the long-term context, in right. the long-term context, you, you don't get a bottom until the Fed actually is deep into a rate-cutting cycle. And that's just what I wanted to underscore because, you know, we've had Dan Niles on, who is bearish overall, but is saying something similar to what you're saying. Hey, we could see a rally off of earnings based on uh, the way things have been going. What do you think is the most important um, macro, I guess, benchmarks or, or news that we should be looking out for that's going to have an impact on on these charts and where things go from here, perhaps uh, post December. Well, I think it's it's very critical to see how the Fed reacts to incoming data. We're we're still lacking a, a data point that will give them an excuse to actually lay off a little bit. I, th I think piling in blindly into these 75 basis point rate hikes coming out of being behind the curve and trying to get ahead of it is a dangerous game because they have not yet been able to assess the economic impact of these rate hikes. Remember, they're very, very lagging. So there's always the danger uh, that uh, that the, the tail end of this is going to come back to haunt all of us at some point next year. So they look at PCE uh, inflation this Friday, for example, see if there's any relief in that whatsoever. And then maybe they back off a little bit and they started chattering a little bit because I think they are getting worried about the velocity of these moves in yields, which is too fast. Sven, they've started chattering or markets have started chattering. I guess there's this question of our investors getting ahead of themselves that they think there might be this pause or pivot eventually. What do you think? Well, since we get 50 to 60 Fed speeches and interviews every month, you know, you got to read the tea leaves and on Friday daily uh, kind of hinted at this as well. And there's been a several Fed speakers that are getting slightly concerned about overdoing hmm. it. Remember, we have the largest debt construct in history. And now when I see the 10-year and the two-year back at 2008 to 2007 levels, when we had debt to GDP about 62% and now we're at 125%, this is a very different economy. And, yeah. and so the, the ability to handle this large increase in yields in an economy that's built on a lot of zombified companies is a very risky game to play. So I think they need to ease off pretty soon and assess what the actual impact is. Okay, Sven, always great to get your insights. Thank you, Sven Hendrick. Thanks for having me. Take care. Up next, a CNBC investigation finds that former Google CEO Eric Schmidt made investments in artificial intelligence while chairing a federal commission on AI. Ethics experts say that raises questions about what a conflict of interest is, where government oversight should be. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Test scores for all U.S. students suffered historic declines during the pandemic. National math scores saw their largest declines ever. Reading scores sank to their lowest levels in 30 years. Every single state saw math or reading scores fall. Michigan teenager Ethan Crumley has pleaded guilty to first-degree murder and terrorism charges in connection with a school shooting that killed four students. Crumley could spend the rest of his life in prison without the chance of parole. Another former Minneapolis police officer has pleaded guilty in the killing of George Floyd. J. Alexander King pleaded guilty to aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. In exchange for that plea, a murder charge will be dismissed. And Rishi Sunak is set to become Britain's next prime minister. He won the race to lead the U.K. after the only other candidate withdrew. Sunak says Britain faces, quote, profound economic challenges, and his priority is to unite the country and deliver economic solutions. That's the very latest. Carl, back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks for that. In recent months, there's been increasing scrutiny on the potential for conflicts of interest when power and influence are wielded in Washington. In September, the New York Times revealed 97 current senators or representatives traded stocks or assets that intersected with committees on which they serve. The Journal this month revealed officials across the executive branch who owned or traded stocks that could be impacted by the agencies where they worked. And now this new CNBC investigation finds the former head of Google, Eric Schmidt, made investments in AI companies while chairing the AI Commission, raising concerns among ethics experts about a fundamental conflict of interest. Here's Eamon Javers. Please welcome Eric Schmidt. Dr. Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO, political advisor to presidents, billionaire, and now a shaper of government policy. In 2019, Congress tasked Schmidt with chairing the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. That federal commission produced this 700-page report advising the government on how to spend 40 billion taxpayer dollars on AI. The na nation needs to become AI ready by 2025. A CNBC investigation found that at the same time Schmidt was influencing the industry's future, he was making personal investments in AI companies that stood to generate profits for himself. There's no indication Schmidt did anything unlawful or even against the rules. Yet venture capital industry records show he made five direct investments in AI companies during his tenure, and more than 50 through other entities he invests in or controls. The total dollar amount of his investments is not publicly available. It's absolutely a conflict of interest. Walter Schaub is a senior ethics fellow at the Watchdog Group Project on Government Oversight and the former director of the U.S. Office of Government Ethics. But his side will say, look, he's a patriotic American. He brings all this expertise to the table. Why shouldn't he serve in this capacity? He may be the greatest person in the world, and maybe he's exactly the right one to be in this commission, but he shouldn't be in this commission while investing in the very thing that's the subject of the commission's focus. Schmidt filed a private financial disclosure form with the federal government at the outset of his tenure. But that financial disclosure form is not a public record. The media and the public don't get to see it. A spokesperson for Schmidt said he revealed his AI investments on that document. The spokesperson said Eric has given full compliance on everything. 
But Schaub believes Schmidt's private disclosure isn't enough. He could have personally released his confidential financial disclosure report. There's nothing preventing him from doing it. And he could have made the decision not to invest in AI while chairing this commission. But Schmidt's situation isn't unusual. Ethics experts like Craig Holman, the Capitol Hill lobbyist for Public Citizen, say a lack of government oversight allows this to happen. The ethics enforcement process in the executive branch is broken. It does not work. Holman says the staffers who are supposed to review these forms have a poor track record of enforcing the rules, and oftentimes they don't even have the training to do so. So if you say the ethics process in Washington is broken, who broke it? It was design broken. What do you think Washington doesn't understand? Schmidt has spent years learning how Washington works. Here's what he said at the Washington Ideas Forum a decade ago. And it's shocking now, having spent a fair amount of time inside the system, how the system actually works. Um, and it's obvious that if the system is organized around incumbencies writing the laws, the incumbencies will benefit from the laws that are written. Google is now one of the greatest incumbent corporations in, in America. Well, perhaps, but we don't write the laws. Today, though, Schmidt says he's proud the commission he chaired wrote actual legislation. Not only should we write down what we thought, which we did, but we would have 100 pages of legislation that they could just pass. In fact, we found full paragraphs from the AI Commission's report are almost identical to the 2021 National Defense Authorization Act. That same bill also budgeted $75 million for, quote, implementing the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence recommendations. So what's the total effect of all this? The impact is we allow the wealthy special interests and the business interests to dominate our policy arena. And the public interest tends to get drowned out in this type of broken ethics process. And just to give you a feel for the scale of all of this, the federal government counts a total of 57 active federal advisory commissions right now with members offering input on everything from nuclear reactor safeguards to the Clean Air Act and global commodities markets, Carl. So there's a lot of these commissions out there in D.C. So two questions. One is, are, is there, are there active attempts to remedy the policies? Yes. And if so, is there a worry that you're going to chase away sort of America's best minds on this stuff? Yeah, that's the key question. Uh, so there are reform efforts that have gone on over the years. They've never really gotten any traction, though, because these federal commissions are sort of a backwater in Washington. Not a lot of people are really focused on. And the people who are on these commissions like them the way they are. And, and that is the big question. If you put too much compliance rigmarole on top of this, are you going to chase away the best and brightest? Are you going to keep people like Eric Schmidt, who has an enormous record of accomplishment, from serving in a federal capacity at all? And I guess that's a question that only only those people can answer, right? Is it When is it too onerous for them to be involved? But the question that the ethics experts ask is, do you want the chairman of the Artificial Intelligence Commission investing in artificial intelligence at the same time he's shaping federal policy? Right. No, that seems obvious. I guess the other question would be, do people believe that what Schmidt can bring is something nobody else can bring, right? right. Are there other alternatives for, for um, people who might have the same intel and yet be more willing to sure. uh, abide by a different policy. I mean, there are thousands of AI experts in this country, maybe not thousands of AI experts who are also billionaires, who are also policy experts. So he is in sort of a unique category in that sense. Um, but uh, the question is not necessarily who serves on these commissions, but how they conduct themselves when they do serve on the commission. Now, what a story, especially on the heels of all the reporting we mentioned earlier. Uh, Eamon, thank you. Thanks, Carl. Uh, Eamon Javers. Appreciate it. John? Yeah, great work from Eamon. Meanwhile, Altimeter Capital CEO Brad Gerstner replying to our earlier segment on Meta, uh, tweeting that his calls to slash headcount 
and metaverse spending are, quote, about structural and strategic changes at Meta to improve financial fitness, team morale, product focus, and velocity, things that improving odds uh, of successfully, uh, improve the odds, perhaps, uh, of successfully winning the next wave of innovation. D, when, when I talked about is this sucking in the gut or is it significant change, my question was about just a 20% headcount cut. He says for Meta at least 20%, plus cut the metaverse spending, plus bring down CapEx spending. He's talking about more than just a 20% cut. Yeah, I mean, the title of his letter is Time to Get Fit, right? Not suggesting that Meta has to go under the knife, so to say, but that it needs to use the tools that it already has, Carl. When he talks about the metaverse, he says, listen, a big part of developing the metaverse is developing artificial intelligence that can help the core product. Um, Also, to John's point earlier, though, you know, Zuckerberg has full control of this company, so maybe you can only make changes around the edges. He's been so determined and has not been deterred at all from the metaverse push, Carl. Yeah, I'm just looking at the letter as well, Dee, and he does point out, I mean, he talks about the cost of capital changing, of course, but also on CapEx. Meta is investing more in CapEx, this is amazing, than Apple, Tesla, Twitter, Snap, and Uber combined. John, that's where he really, he thinks, he thinks the bet, it's a big swing on Metaverse and maybe just too big in his view. I mean, how much does it cost, right? I mean, just the Metaverse <laughs> part. Five billion, I mean, can you imagine a startup spending $5 billion a year? I mean, All right, well, you don't. Counterpoint, counterpoint in that list is not uh, Microsoft, Alphabet, or Amazon that spent so much, tens of billions of dollars on CapEx to build out cloud infrastructure. That might have seemed crazy when they first embarked on this. So yeah, I'm not I don't talking know. About, I'm not talking about CapEx overall. I'm talking about just Metaverse. Gertner is saying, eh, maybe just spend $5 billion on the metaverse. Not, not talking about the whole 30 <laughs> billion versus 25 billion in overall CapEx. Just yeah. 5 billion in metaverse spending. I mean, innovation comes from startups. Can you imagine a startup that had just $5 billion a year to spend on building, building <laughs> well, the metaverse? I mean, let's I'm, talk I'm about efficiency. Cloud. <laughs> no, I'm talking cloud too, John. I mean, in terms of what Amazon was able to spend in the billions early on, and yes, a startup wouldn't have been able to do that, but it's Amazon, and they became the number one player. Maybe Meta will become the number one player. We don't know how much Apple is going to be spending on its headset. Um, But good debate. I'm sure we'll continue to have it on the show. After the break, uh, China, meanwhile, we haven't looked at tech there, but it is getting crushed today. We'll tell you why when Tech Check returns in two minutes. Don't go away. Huge sell-off in Chinese tech stocks today. Take a look at some of these names. Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu, Pinduoduo down double digits this morning. And that's after President Xi Jinping secured a third term as leader and filled the Politburo Standing Committee with his allies. Uh, the move spells bad news for the tech sector, which has faced intense regulatory scrutiny under his leadership, with the government cracking down on areas spanning from data protection to the use of algorithms. And now new listings are under pressure, too, with the Nasdaq halting Chinese small cap IPOs as it investigates recently listed companies with volatile debuts, including names like Adentax and AMD. TD Digital. Uh, Guys, the takeaway from the weekend um, and Xi Jinping starting out his third term is this 
continued drifting away from those free market principles towards what the CCP is comfortable with. I remember starting as a journalist, my career in China, and there was this optimism. Xi Jinping was just about to come into power that maybe he would reform the markets more. And that was quickly, quickly, John, went away as people realized that he was really going to move to consolidate power, which is what he's done over the last decade or so and what he really continued to do over the weekend. You know, we like memes on this show. We don't show them as much as we used to, but I think sometimes they can be uh, teachable, Carl. And if I were to make a meme today, it would be Hu Jintao as a stand-in for Chinese tech, right? Inexplicably, we're not exactly (laughs) sure what it means, uh, he was escorted out of that um, 20th Communist Party Congress, sitting right next to Xi and then not sitting next to Xi. So kind of like he, he represented a sort of openness when people were optimistic about you know, China joining global markets in a fair and consistent way. Now, that's sort of been escorted out. Why? Is it because it's not welcome? Is it because, um, you know, health there was issues. just a little... Yeah, was it just some, some little health issues that needed to be cleared up? But there's no communication about that, right? So I, I think that's where we are with Chinese tech, Carl. Yep, uh, and, and, and by extension, uh, some other names as well, including Starbucks, uh, Las Vegas Sands, and Wynn, all of them helping to lead the S&P yeah. lower today. We'll take a break as we uh, talk about some more programming here. You're not going to want to miss the season finale of Jay Leno's Garage this Wednesday. Jay joins the president at the Secret Service training facility to discuss hot rodding and the future of EVs. It's coming up Wednesday at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Stay with us. Let's get a gut check on semiconductors, banks buying in, betting on names that are trying to innovate in autos. First off, JP Morgan says Wolf Speed is poised to lead the pack, upgrading that company to overweight, raising its price target to $160 per share ahead of its investor day next week. The bank believes that as it ramps up capacity, it could see as much as 50% upside. HSBC, meanwhile, betting on Qualcomm, initiating the chipmaker at buy given its own auto ambitions, saying it is well positioned for growth in that sector as the smartphone business matures. Lastly, Barclays is bearish on analog devices, downgrading the name to equal weight as its own auto orders slow and inventories build. You can read more about Wolfspeed and other semi-names on CNBC Pro. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We've been previewing big tech earnings, and we want to get to Microsoft and Apple and some of the headwinds facing those companies. Ahead of that, our Steve Kovac has the latest right here at One Market. Um, what strikes me about these two names is that they had, they're some of the biggest in the market, also the most resilient so far this year. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, but they are both facing slowing growth, Deirdre, through the end of the year, and that, those are the big headwinds facing Apple and Microsoft. For Apple, it's inflation, foreign exchange, and new COVID shutdowns in China all could put a damper on its growth. On the Microsoft side, it's foreign exchange and falling demand for PCs. In fact, Microsoft said demand is deteriorating. Both companies have tried to soften the blow, though, amid those headwinds, Deirdre. Let's start with Apple. Tim Cook told me last quarter Apple was going to be more, quote, 
deliberate in hiring. So that not a sl- necessarily pausing or slowing down, just deliberate. Also reports of ending some contractors' employment and doling out less than expected for research and development. On the Microsoft side, they've actually had layoffs. In July, they laid off a, less than 1% of their company. That's 180,000 employees in total. And just last week, Microsoft let another 1,000 employees go. Now let's look forward. Apple needs to keep iPhone sales momentum through the end of the year to make up for these headwinds. Morgan Stanley analysts reporting App Store sales were down 2%. That's for services. And they're also going to be able to make up for it with new ads on the homepage of the App Store. Those start showing up tomorrow. And Microsoft needs to hope IT spending remains strong, especially among its biggest customers. If small and medium businesses start to cut, its Azure cloud growth, which has been flat to down in recent quarters, will be more than important forever. John, I'll send it back to you. Steve, it seems most interesting to me that Apple is in a unique position right now. So many of the other companies that we've been talking about thought that a pandemic boom might continue and they ramped up big in headcount during that period. Most of Apple's headcount is in retail and that cohort was at home and they were just sort of repurposing them to online support, not necessarily staffing up big and hiring a lot of people. They were focusing their investment on vertical integration, which is now paying out big margin benefits for them. So they don't have the same sort of whiplash effect that some other companies, you know, like Meta, like Amazon have, right? Yeah, that's right, John. They've been more resistant to this uh, fall in demand we've seen among other PC makers and consumer electronic makers. We got all those warnings from AMD and NVIDIA, for example, earlier uh, last quarter. So look, they've been holding up and they need that demand to hold up, like I said. Otherwise, it's going to be really tough. If iPhone sales start to drop, they're not going to have anything to make up for any kind of downfall uh, due to foreign exchange and software sales and services sales, John. Great look ahead. Steve Kovac, thank you. Thanks. Let's spend some more time with Apple. Evercore ISI analyst Amit Darinayi joins us now. Amit, have you, when you're looking at Apple's spending, at their costs, did they have some sort of big explosion or growth during the pandemic, particularly in headcount, the way some of the other tech names did, or are they in an entirely different position? You know, um, my, my impression is they're in a very different position. Part of this is, you know, if you think about the big thing Apple does is, you know, on the manufacturing side, at least, is they tend to outsource all of it essentially to Foxconn and some of the ODM companies. So they never had to scale that up. Uh, where they did scale up hiring, and you can see this on the PL, is really on the R&D line, right? R&D was growing at a faster pace, one and a half to two times of revenue growth. Uh, but, you know, if you think about the R&D investments they're making on, you know, assets like the M1 processor, those are actually helping them pay off from a market share margin perspective. So they did scale up hiring, but it was very modest and it was very much around integrating new componentry within the products. It wasn't around large scale manufacturing, which they have always outsourced. I've read a couple of um, reports from your peers this morning, basically arguing that the bear case on Apple has been weak, uh, mostly valuation driven. And to get paid, they really need the company to talk down demand and, and build a, allow for some cracks in the phone story. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the, the saying is always, you know, as goes iPhone sales, so goes Apple stock. Uh, I think that's actually going to hold up uh, every time, including this cycle. Um, so far, the demand looks not only strong, but actually strong at the very high end of iPhone. So, uh, you know, if anything, I would argue the mix shift is going to be much more favorable than what the street's modeling. Uh, that could be a nice upside surprise. And then the other part that I feel is very less talked about, but could be a nice swing factor on the upside for Apple is, 
for all the negativity that you're hearing on the semiconductor side, especially memory, all of that is the input cost for Apple, which should imply Apple's gross margins and free cash flow could surprise folks on the upside. I think that might be the one kind of sleeper surprise through earnings cycle this week. Hey, Meet, it's the uh, quick one. Have you priced in an AR headset from Apple? I asked because that B of A note downgrading Meta today called out a, quote, potential new Apple competition. Uh, you know, I think we've sized it up in terms of what it could be in fiscal 23 when it officially comes out at a few billion dollars, four or five billion dollars. But I think it's not in our model. It's not in anyone's models. And my gut is this is going to be a lot like the Apple Watch launch. It might be a bit of a snooze fest initially, but as apps build up, you'll see it scale up over the next three to five years. Yep. Often the way it is, whether it's AirPods or even the iPhone, it, it take a while to scale it up. Amit, thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody, take out your phones. QR code on the screen. Join us virtually on October 25th and 26th for CNBC's 2022 Work Summit, which brings together top names in business, policy, labor, banking, and academia. You can scan that QR code at the bottom of your screen, right there near the middle, to register. You know, you, you take out your camera, point it there, then tap, and it'll take you somewhere. Register. We'll be right back. One more thing before we go, and that's Tim Cook waving the checkered flag at the U.S. Formula One Grand Prix in Austin this weekend. Some on Twitter not taking too kindly to his technique. Uh, comes on the heels of Disney's partnership extension with F1, winning rights to broadcast races on ESPN through 2025. And, D, uh, you talked with Mercedes team principal and the CEO last week as that uh, sport has seen huge gains in popularity. <laughs> Yeah, that Netflix series has done a lot for that popularity. And, you know, I feel like Tim Cook's wave was kind of Toto Wolf inspired. They're both kind of steady, not super, super enthusiastic. The fans, yeah. though, that's another story. I, right? like, I like the wave, D. It's a, Tim Cook's <laughs> wave is a measured wave. It's the wave of somebody keeping headcount under control, the wave of a CEO <laughs> who wants you back in the office three days a week, Carl. Zuck would you have been going crazy, right? You can take the logistician out of Cupertino, but you can't take it. That's, that's great. Great video. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.